0: Hello fellow B2B nerds and welcome to the Merkle B2B Demand Gen Blueprint Podcast. My name's Tim Brogan, I'm a B2B paid media strategist and I've been working with marketers, planners and specialists who design and deliver demand gen programs for the past 10 years. Over the course of this series, I'll be hosting discussions which unpack demand gen program design, and you'll hear from experts in strategy, ABM, media and analytics who will be sharing key trends and industry best practice to help you design more effective demand gen experiences. Today, we're sitting down to talk strategy and the role it plays in setting the foundations of your demand gen programs and how we can use strategy to better leverage opportunities to improve your performance. I have with me today a couple of leading lights from Merkle B2B. I've got Jake Hurd, a Merkle B2B VP of strategy for APAC. And I've also got Uzma Etcher joining us from Singapore, who is a strategy director in our Merkle B2B office there. Hello, guys.
1: Hey, Tim. How you doing?
2: Hi, everyone.
0: Guys, just to start off, if you could give the listeners a quick intro to who you are, what you do at Merkle, and how you help clients. And Uzma, why don't we start off with you?
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Uzma Etcher. I am strategy director at Merkle B2B. Basically, my job can be summed up as I do a little bit of everything and a little bit of nothing on most days. What that really means is that I make sure that all of the work that we do for our B2B clients is well thought through. We're planning for through the funnel activity and we make sure that all of our campaigns are integrated to drive business results, whether it's for marketing or HR or operations.
0: Osma, great to have you joining us today, mate. Jake, I've worked with you for maybe five years or so now. That's a long time, isn't it? We've seen some things. Do you want to tell the listeners a bit about who you are, where you've come from, what you do?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm a bit unusual in the agency world. I come from a predominantly management consulting background, actually. Accenture, Sapient Consulting, e-consultancy, certainly like nearly 20 years of doing that. My role in the business, like Ozma, is just to help clients navigate the complexities of what we have to do. And I suspect we're going to touch on it a little bit today, but B2B is very difficult. And in my mind, strategy in its simplest form is about choosing what not to do, because there's so much you could do, you can get tied up in knots. So my job is just to help clients, guide them through the complexities of choice.
0: I love that. Nice, simple definition. Uzma, I would love to hear your definition of strategy, because I think it can be a really nebulous, amorphous concept. Have you got something as concise and pithy as Jake?
2: Yeah, strategy, as you rightly said, is very nebulous, but I think the main crux of strategy is understanding where to play and understanding how to win, understanding your customers and what are the different things that are going to make your customers sit up and go, oh, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that. It's really about helping clients identify growth opportunities, really simply put. Absolutely. I guess getting into it, firstly, what do you guys see as the main differences between formulating a B2B strategy versus the B2C stuff, which you might have worked on in a past life?
1: I think the main complexity is something we talk about all the time in that there is huge amount of decision making needs to be done by different individuals in a business. And again, it's dependent on the size of the organization, but typically our clients Want to speak to mid to large enterprise type organizations? So you have this complexity where buying committees have increased in size like massively over the last few years. I think now the average research is like the average panel is in excess of twenty different people. So the challenge we have now is we have to design a strategy to talk to twenty different buyers that may come or go over a period of time against a product that could take anything between three to six to twelve to eighteen months to sell. And everybody in that decision panel is going to have a different expectation of what they want from that brand experience when engaging with a vendor. So whether you work in procurement, you're going to be more focused on cost efficiencies and that kind of stuff versus maybe a senior decision maker who just wants the best possible product for the best possible outcome, right the way down to end users who actually just want to know if it's functional or not. You have to cater and design a sequence of messaging and comms around every single one of those individuals but also make sure that the messaging is consistent. That's a challenge, right? And I think that's the real difference between B2B and B2C.
0: And add to that, you've got the fragmentation of the media landscape, proliferation of channels, and all the nuance that goes into the different consumption habits in different markets within APAC, and it gets a bit tricky.
1: Correct. Although I think, broadly speaking, I think the, the expectations in the channels is the same, right? Everybody says B2C is the same as B2B. And I think Individually, the channels, potentially, there are some nuances, I think, with professional networks and professional sort of publications and things that you would want to go down into. But the real driving factor goes back that we're talking about getting us individual messaging at scale across a large space of time. And that is bloody difficult. Ozma,
2: Yeah. Something I would <laughs> add to that is, yes, we're talking to a much larger cohort in B2B marketing. But more often than not, B2B marketers are responsible for more than their tiny little marketing departments. More often than not, they have to be held accountable, not just for driving pipeline or driving revenue, but also for making sure that the employee experience is up to mark, making sure that different teams operate well and that the sales marketing pipeline is a well-oiled machine. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily take that into consideration when they look at the difference between B2B and B2C marketing. They'll only look at well, what are the lead you deliver, what are the customers that you bring to the table. But there's actually an engine behind that, that B2B marketers are being more and more responsible for these days.
0: How do you guys think that the new technologies or newish technologies we have at our disposal now, things like we've got better data, we've got intent data, we've got technology stacks and marketing automation. How is this stuff helping you or changing the way you craft strategies?
1: I think for me, it really just changes the end point. Um, We typically think of things in almost like an iceberg, right? And we refer to this, I know it's a bit of an inside joke in our business, but the iceberg is that the 10% above the waterline doesn't actually matter what that looks like. It's going to be there. So channels and technologies come and go. I think it's the bit that sits below the waterline that's really important. So it's the 90% that actually people tend not to think about. Part of that is data and basic manipulation of data. But more importantly, I think it's actually around behaviors. I think that's a really key thing to know is that fundamentally people's behavior doesn't change. There's always going to be like an emotional driver or an irrational driver, sometimes both at the same time, in individuals making these business decisions that we want to reach as marketers. And those motivations can vary, right? They can be, like I said earlier, it could be I want to save money, I want to grow, I want to the best possible product or solution for my team. It, it all goes back to just understanding what those sort of 101 motivations are. That doesn't change. And I think i think paraphrasing Jeff Bezos a little bit, which my soul has just shriveled up, but he says, don't focus on what will change in 10 years, focus on what won't change. And, and I think that's really, really true for what, certainly how we try and apply strategy.
0: Guys really interesting, some of the stuff you're talking about here in terms of understanding motivations and building out your strategies across touch points for that, and it makes me think of some of the work I've done with you guys on customer journey mapping, and I think this is a really interesting space. Why do you think that's important, and what value do you see in those sort of initiatives in being able to enhance demand generation for clients?
2: I think a couple of things are at play here it's fundamental to remember that in B2B, people still buy as people. I know it's very easy for us to say we're going to go after customer archetypes, we're going to go after the procurement guys, we're going to go after the finance team or the marketing team or the IT team. But what belies all of that is that all of these individuals have functional, rational needs, as well as emotional needs that need to be met, and they all impact buying. So while most customer journeys would follow a typical flow of awareness down through to purchase and then loyalty, you also need to look at what are the different day-to-day things that are going to impact their job. So you can look at things like, how do I make sure capital is available? Or how do I make sure my total cost of operation is going to be kept down? that's great to to answer to, that's great to create content for, but really you need to focus on the emotional aspect of what customers need. And those are gonna be things like, I'm so sick and tired of my team coming to me and asking me to fix this little IT issue that I have. I wanna make sure that my ticketing system is not bombarded with very little ticket. And those are challenges and pain points that we definitely need to consider when we create our customer journey.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it reminds me of that adage about no one ever got fired for buying IBM. And I think it's really important to get away from just the rational, especially for kind of the top of funnel, which is gonna improve the the bottom of the funnel and having the right emotional messaging at the right stage. That that makes a lot of sense to me. Moving on from journey mapping, I think looking at the market more broadly, like there's a lot of volatility at the moment. We've seen we've got this kind of murky economic backdrop we've got a lot of pressure on businesses and marketing budgets are being cut and and I'm sure this is filtering through to discussions you guys are having with clients at the moment. How are you helping clients navigate all of the change that's going on at the moment as strategists?
1: For me, it's about choosing what not to do, right? So a key activity we're spending a lot of time on at the moment is actually prioritising and helping people understand if they do A, they can't do B, and if they do B, then they can't do A and maybe C. So there's a, real, there's a real emphasis at the moment of doing more with less. But at the same time, people are actually trying to think about how to be innovative with it. And that goes back to the prioritization element, right? Because we can try new things, but we don't want to put all our eggs in the new things basket. We also want to make sure that we're still delivering returns, short-term, mid-term, long-term, whatever. But prioritizing really helps. And I think the innovation element's really quite fascinating at the moment. I think historically creativity has come from scarcity and it doesn't matter where you look for that. We've been through a few recessions in certainly in my lifetime. And in each instance, clients have actually come out of the gate swinging a lot of the time. Certainly the ones who have been brave to focus on new things and trying new tactics that they otherwise might not have thought about because they've been forced into a corner. And sometimes it gets great results and sometimes it doesn't. But I think for me, that's a really important element of strategy as well, is the choices you make. It's about being brave. Like You have to try new things and just try different things. Otherwise, you're just going to go nuts, right? You're going to keep going around in the same old ground or even lose ground. And that's not a great thing for anybody.
0: Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Like I've seen a lot of data that supports when brands are actually innovating, investing during periods of downturn that they tend to see a high rate of growth coming out of these downturns than Mm. brands that don't. But Uzma, we'd love to hear from you. Where do you see brands still innovating and being courageous in these sort of more testing times where people are being a little bit more reserved and more cautious?
2: I think it's good to to look back at what happened the last time there was massive economic uncertainty around us. I think marketers in the early to late 2000s were focusing all of their efforts and placed a lot of their bets on digital marketing, which was the up and coming new child of marketing and companies that were at the forefront of that really saw great returns. They saw that they came out of the recession shining, which is all wonderful. I think something that we need to look at as marketers and something that we need to be held responsible for, and this is not a new trend, right? It's just that more and more people need to start focusing on this and pay attention to it, is that we need to be held more accountable to two main things. The two things that we need to focus on are driving long-term pipeline, long-term growth, but also being visible within the organization. And the reason why I say this is because marketing budgets are often the first ones to get slashed within an organization. A lot of C-suite guys would look at the marketing teams and say, they're not driving any revenue for me. They're not actually impacting sales too much. Let's cut their budget and move on. So I think a real job marketers need to do is look at selling themselves across the organization and getting more entrenched within the operations of an organization, making sure things like employee experience are factored in, working more closely with the sales team so they can show long-term growth. It's not just about driving that immediate sale, that immediate million dollars. It's about the next five, 10, 15 million dollars that are going to come in the next two or three years that are important and that marketing teams need to focus on. And I think another trend that is driving marketing teams to look at short-term gains is the availability of data and the availability of intent data. We tend to look at customers that are looking to convert right now. What about customers that are looking to convert in in 12 months' time? There is that very popular adage that 95% of your market aren't going to be looking for your product at any given point in time. So how do we make sure that we are building systems and building engines to to cater to that 95% when there is an economic downturn? Because sooner or later, there is going to be a customer that is at their hand and says, hey, I want to buy from you, but there's no marketing team to, to pick up on those leads.
0: Yeah, love, love the call out to that 95% of your market being out. And you'd think it's probably slightly higher than that at the moment. So I think really important to be keeping that brand pulse going or having that machine in place that's ensuring we're still touching potential customers for when they do come back into market.
1: The thing is with that 95%, right? Yes, it's true. But at the same time, it doesn't mean 95% are like completely out of market. That's the thing for me is actually, it could be 10%, it could be 30%. Like, there's going to be people at a different stage of a funnel, Just because they're not right at the bottom primed and ready to go, doesn't mean they're not researching, considering, aware of a brand, whatever. So I think that 95% stat is true, but also a little bit dangerous because it's very macro. But I also want to just pick up on something that Asma talked about as well. I think the digital element is really interesting. I think at a, a kind of a theoretical level in my head, marketers are really well placed within businesses at the moment because we jumped on the digital bandwagon... As said in like the early sort of 2000s, and it was a real sort of groundswell moment, I think, for marketing. The rest of the business didn't, and that's why marketing is often leading these digital transformation initiatives in organisations. Because what we have is we have this kind of legacy of adoption and understanding channels and how customers interact with those channels. And now we're in a position where the business is turned to us, particularly because of COVID. And everybody talks about this, but. Particularly with COVID, where sales teams, they couldn't go out and have meetings or go to events and take prospects out for fat lunches and things. So they had to turn to marketing to actually help them fill the pipeline more effectively and more efficiently. And digital was the only way to do that. And we're actually in a really interesting kind of turning point where, you know, everyone's seen the kind of the Scott Brinker, MarTech map with like a billion things on it. The one that's running in parallel is actually the sales tech one. A couple of years ago, there was like eight things on there. This year, there's like 200, 300 things on there. So sales tech is growing. But again, marketing has always been the forefront of that charge. And the second part to that, because I'm going to on a bit of a ramble now, but the second part to that is actually when you look at the channel breakdown at the moment, we talked about growth and the fact that there is a need for really dealing with high pressure targets in quite restrictive financial environments at the moment. Performance media. Is 80% of budget at the moment. Like, again, at a sort of a macro level, I saw the stats somewhere. And it's all digital, right? Like, traditional media is flat, but digital media, particularly in search and paid social, they're your performance channels. They're going gangbusters at the moment. But running in parallel to that is actually physical events, because we're all back in the office and we're all back doing things and meeting people again. But the focus on actually doing interesting physical events. That's where I'm seeing innovation from at the moment. Not just like going to trade shows, but actually creating a concept or some sort of installation to really engage customers and prospects. We're seeing a lot of that at the moment. So it's it's kind of an interesting, Discord. Digital's primary, but physical space is coming back at the moment.
0: Yeah, like I don't think we've seen a full snapback to full in-person physical all the time. I'm seeing a lot of hybrid thinking now, which I think is great. I think everyone was done to death with webinars by...
1: The, end of COVID. the irony of doing a podcast webinar. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I think we've covered a bit of innovation there. there. Is there anything that, that you're really excited about in the market right now or you think clients need to be taking notice of in 2023 when they're designing their demand programs or they're designing their customer experiences?
2: I think it would be remiss of us to not address the elephant in the room because so many of our clients are coming to us and asking us about What are our views on generative AI? And what are our views on the advent of things like ChatGPT and how that's going to impact us? I think as marketers, we shouldn't ignore the power that these tools bring us. And I think we should definitely leverage it. But the only thing that I would say to using that is to heed with caution. Not because we are Luddites and because we don't believe in it. I love ChatGPT. It has made my life infinitely easier especially when it comes to writing very difficult emails. I will inject my personality in as much as possible. But I think it's about being cautious with relying too much on on tech and relying too much on AI. There is this concept of human in the loop. So it's always about getting a human involved as much as possible when you're running these programs on autopilot. I rambled there, but basically what I'm trying to say is that be innovations like ChatGPT and AI are here for the long term. Just be responsible with how we use it. Don't trust everything that comes out of it, but also use it to make your life easier and show clients that it's making their lives easier too. Don't just be a fear monger and say that, oh, everything is inaccurate or everything that, that comes out of it. it is not going to be completely truthful. But there, there's a long way to go for us as marketers to leverage it.
0: I agree. Like generative AI, it's so hot right now. Really interesting space. And, and like we're actually seeing it come into fruition in paid media. Like We've got platforms like Facebook where you're able to build out creatives in ads using generative AI to deliver more personalized experiences. And it shocks me at the speed that we're seeing this actually being adopted. I think like the challenges will be in, in B2B where you've got highly regulated industries, user privacy and those kind of things. It's going to be a really tricky space to navigate, but yeah, like slow and steady. I suppose would be the way to go. I think we've covered a lot of really interesting stuff there. The final thing I wanted to touch on, obviously, research and insighting is the I suppose the cornerstone of building really effective strategy for demand gen. I know that we have recently released our Merkle B2B Superpowers research. This is the 3rd edition. The third yep. year we've run this. Yes. Jake, do you want to tell us a little bit about what Merkle B2B Superpowers
1: is, what the research covers? Yeah, sure. Look, it's a really exciting piece of research, which is, I've never thought I'd ever say that about a, quite a lengthy document full of data. But look, it's great. It is the third time we've done this. At its kind of core, what we do is we go out into the marketplace and we've spoken to just over three and a half thousand senior decision makers across technology financial services, professional services, manufacturing, and it's a global study. And I think I'm fairly safe to say it's probably the biggest one of its kind in the world. But part of what we do is we break out that down into understanding and mapping out the experience and decision-making drivers of each of those individuals. So yes, there's three and a half thousand people, but there's nearly 7,000 different experience points being mapped out and analysed. So it's an incredibly robust piece of data to understand what does a buyer journey look like end-to-end and what are the primary motivations within that. And the reason it's called the superpowers is because there's a number of attributes that people show, and this goes back to what I was talking about, about behaviors earlier, there's a number of attributes that people show that can be clustered into whether it's helping them be better at their job for the business or whether it's actually helping them be a better professional. And we refer to them as just as the superpowers because businesses that actually exceed on those key attributes massively outperform their peers, massively. And there's some interesting data in the report. One of the key things, we talked about experience a lot. One of the key things for me is that there is a huge gap happening at the moment in the entire buyer experience. So actually experiences are getting worse year on year. Um, So B2B marketers are actually not really focusing on what customers want at a particular point in that journey, I think they're too much focused on the short term results that the sales or the business is asking them to drive.
0: I'm actually talking to clients now about planning cycles. And like we, we normally do a quarterly planning cycle because budgets are quarterly and public companies, whatever, it's the way they operate. But I think there's a lot of value in looking at things at least on a six month planning cycle, or I think a year would just be ideal.
1: Yeah. One of the key data points we found is, again, the buying cycle from start to finish has grown again. So the average length of time it takes for a business to identify a need for a product to actually making the purchase of that product is 350 days. So that's a year. So again, this is really interesting when you start to think about the place of brand with demand, because going back to that 95%, right, that 95% are at different stages across a year To make a decision whether to purchase with you. So running like a three-month brand campaign, just not going to cut it. Brand campaigns, you have to be thinking in those 12-month plus cycles. And again, the real challenge is if you look at things like the average tenure of a CMO, it's only about 18 months, two years. It's not very long at all. So again, I think this is why from our side of things, people are very myopic in focusing on short-term results, because short-term results equates to bonus, moving around, doing whatever, keeping sales happy, but at the detriment of actually missing a huge potential pipeline of customers that you're not talking to. And again, the impact of brand, as all the studies show, like, is paramount. It has such a important place um, and can actually speed up the decision-making process. Oh, so.
0: they, we see we that when we run paid media and we integrate a brand program with a demand program and you see it requires less touches to actually drive a conversion. So. I think in a very practical way, it's true.
1: Exactly. But again, the decision-making process over time is so long with so many different stakeholders. It's a real challenge, right? So there's a lot of really cool data in there. It's an exciting thing. I've
0: had a look at the data and some of the highlights that have been pulled out and what you were talking about there, that the customer experience is a bit subpar. What's really driving that? Why do you think marketers are less focused on that this year than just
1: last year? Again, it is restrictive budgets because again, Azmi, you're speaking with us, but you can attest to this. Customers and our clients are thinking about how to get the shortest wins on the board for their products and services. get the fastest conversions in the shortest space of time at the detriment of thinking about a customer experience. The irony for me is that when you actually look at the experience gap on that buyer journey, the biggest gaps exist in terms of where people have had a less than satisfactory experience is when they first make contact with the vendor and actually when they go to do the contract signing so at the, both ends of the journey are actually the worst experiences and funnily enough a lot of the work that we do is like people refer to it as the messy middle but I, people neglect that kind of initial interaction and then the contract stages and I think Osmo, I think it's fair to say we're trying to steer people towards thinking about the holistic journey and how to improve each of those stages at the right time at the right place
2: Oh absolutely I think What a lot of people forget about customer experience and customer journeys, especially as marketers, is that we tend to think our job ends as soon as a lead comes through your sales platform. And you're like, okay, my job is done. All too often, our job does not end over there. And we're more often than not being held accountable for things that we don't think are within our control. We Mustn't forget that the customer journey includes everything from awareness through to decision. And then what happens after sales gets a hold of that lead? Is sales doing a good enough job in following up with your teams? Are we enabling the sales team well enough to sell effectively? Is the contracting process easy to do? After we get a lead in or after we get a customer, what are we doing to drive loyalty? What are we doing to drive cross-sell and upsell? That is a marketer's job and we forget that. We are so busy throwing money at the bottom of the funnel and saying that we've gotten 10 MQLs in, but what is that 10 MQLs going to drive us in terms of pipeline in the next two or three years? Probably nothing if we don't look at things like sales enablement and if we don't look at things like loyalty. And loyalty goes beyond just just emails, right? It's the entire, entire employee and customer experience. It's
1: actually a great point. Collectively, in my career, I have never worked on a B2B loyalty strategy. Never. Excuse me? Never. And I don't think, obviously, I'm not sure I'm not sure you have, and I'm certainly, not, I don't know if Asma has, but again, the loyalty element's fascinating because nobody talks about things like metrics, like customer lifetime value, but we do in consumer.
0: It's really interesting because B2B, 80-20 rule, like 80% of your revenue is coming in from 20% of customers, and that post-sale experience is really critical. And to think that you've never done a loyalty type initiative is strange, but interesting.
1: N- not in the B2B space.
2: No nope to clients. Give us better brief. Yeah.
1: <laughs> if anyone wants to do a B2B loyalty strategy, you know where we are.
0: <laughs> no harm in a shameless Sorry, plug. Right. That's fine. That's fine. Hey, last question I've got just on the Merkle B2B superpowers research. One other thing that I thought was really interesting, an insight that newly emerging corporate priorities mean buyers are increasingly seeking broader third-party validation of B2B brand reputations. What is the importance of third-party validation and why do you think that is increasing in importance?
1: I think that's really, really good call out. It's going beyond the impact, I think, of the traditional kind of marketing mindset where we generate leads. We generate demand, typically through paid environment and owned environments. This is becoming much more of an earned type question. Those, the third-party validation is things like, if you're in technology, it's going to be things like your Forrester and Gartner, Waves, or your IDC reports, those types of things. It's getting the validation by external peers and sources that your product or solution is great, and that can't be bought. And this is, again, goes back to the stuff we talked about earlier, where marketing's at the center of the business, because marketing can control and distribute that message. But at the end of the day, they don't own the product. They have to work with the product teams. They have to work with the sales teams. They have to work with PR. They have to work with a whole bunch of different stakeholders to actually get that validation and take that message to market. So it's a really interesting space, I think, at the moment.
0: Yeah. And I think some of the challenges that I would see just in terms of third-party validation from a paid media standpoint is, you know, we want to use case studies, customer success stories. We want to do the Forrester, Gartner, analyst type activations, but yeah, it becomes a budget thing. It becomes a resource thing with so much heavy lifting involved. And I understand why that can be a little bit difficult, but I would like to see more of the budget going into kind of the thought leadership, customer success type pieces. Cause I, I believe is that's, that's really key in building your reputation as a B2B org.
1: 100%. I think the key thing there, though, is that's not necessarily a third-party validation. It's you showcasing how great a job you've done. Mm. The third-party thing, though, when you think about like at a tactical level, you can still make the association with a third party. So again, in Australia, for example, financial services clients, you can take out those wonderful native advertorial type things on the AFR, for mm-hmm. example. Now, if you, unless you look really closely, you don't necessarily know it's paid, but it is the association with. And because it's on the AFR and it looks like a proper article and it's got great quotes from people and you're not necessarily plugging a particular product, that in itself carries gravitas. And that, in effect, the association by default becomes almost like a third party validation. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of little hacks I think you can do. You don't have to wait 12 months to get on an analyst report. But there's lots of little hacks, I think, certainly in the media space where you can actually pay for the association. And by default, that kind of cements that validation in people's minds. Yeah,
2: But I think also another point to add, when it comes to third-party validation, it doesn't necessarily come just from organizations. It comes from things like making sure that your wider network believes in your product or believes in your service. Because it's easy for us to have third-party validation when you are a tech company. But what about if you are a bank? What if you are a consultancy or a professional services firm? That's not necessarily going to come from the foresters and gardeners immediately, but that's going to come from knowing your wider target audience and knowing your wider sphere of influence. And that's where things like account marketing, account-based marketing, or even looking at NPS scores come into play. And that's something that we can't forget in in B2B marketing either.
1: Dare I even say B2B communities? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a thing. Strike
2: that from the record.
1: (laughs) No, no, it's, it's a thing. Like, again... There's professional proof and then there's like more broadly social proof. And I think, again, some of the platforms we use, like LinkedIn, is such a core thing to what we do as B2B marketers. But again, having that peer validation or that peer recommendation can actually go so much further than just having an analyst report. But as I said, analyst reports are on the rise.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I think that's a great thought to finish on. Jake, Usma, always profound, always interesting huge amount to take away from that. There's a lot that I will take away from my work. I just wanted to thank you guys for joining me today and for being so generous with your time and your thoughts. Thank yeah. you.
1: Thanks, Tim. Anytime. Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for joining us for the Merkel B2B Demand Gen Blueprint podcast series. If you'd like to find out more about Merkel or the Merkle B2B superpowers research, you can visit us on our website or email us on inquiry at merkleinc.com.au or click the link in the episode description below. Thanks again.